The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living right here on voiceamerica.com. And we have an interesting story for you today. My guest is Ben Tarnoff, and his brand new book is A Counterfeiter's Paradise, The Wicked Lives and Surprising Adventures of Three Early American Moneymakers. And, you know, this is about counterfeiting, but really there's a much bigger message in here about what we can take from this in terms of our nation and in terms of America and America and money and about our economy. So uh, welcome to Ben. Now let me tell you a little bit about Ben. Uh, ben has worked at Latham's Quarterly, and his writing has appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard in 2007. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Patricia. Thanks so much for having me. Good, good. So you started your writing career at a, at a young age. I did, yeah. I really started, you know, you mentioned the broader impact of this book. It was really the financial yeah. crisis in 2008 that started me on this path. Yeah. Why? Why did you decide to write about this? Well, it emerged in the financial crisis, which was so stark, is the volatility of our financial system that, you know, you wake up overnight and suddenly all of this wealth just evaporated. And that made me curious about where America's financial system had come from, whether it had always been this volatile, if it had always been this chaotic. And I found that counterfeiters were a great window into America's financial history because they felt symbolic of our nation's financial spirit both then and now. These men and women wanted to create something for nothing. And I think that spirit endures today. Hmm. Do you think that that counterfeiting has hurt our country in general? Well, it's an interesting question. I think during the golden age of American counterfeiting, which is really the colonial period through the Civil War, there was so much counterfeit currency in circulation. Just to give you a sense that by the time of the Civil War, it was estimated that between a third and a half of all currency in circulation was counterfeit. So it was just a tremendous amount. And I think on balance, it actually probably helped the American economy because it provided a huge infusion of currency and credit into a country that desperately needed both. Hmm. How did you decide which counterfeiters to focus on? Or which story? Sure. As you can imagine, with this topic, there's just so many good stories. I mean, there's a lot of great jailbreaks. There's people running from police. There's all sorts of mischief. But I needed three characters who intersected with the political and economic landscape 
of early America in interesting ways. And that's really what these three counterfeiters profiled in my book did. They pinpointed the specific vulnerabilities that made early America such a haven for counterfeiting. Hmm. So let's talk, are they all, would you say they're all very different, Ben, or were they similar? Well, they, the, re, the reason that they each made so much money were, was different. I mean, they each manipulated a different factor of the American economy. But I think personality-wise, they actually had a lot in common. I think all counterfeiters, even today, it takes a level of charisma because you have to not only be counterfeiting well, I mean, not only do you have to be a good engraver, you have to be a good artist to create good counterfeits, but you have to appear persuasive. You have to convince the shopkeeper that you look authentic. Mm-hmm. 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 And how did these, these men, and I assume it was all men, yes, how did they infuse their money into the system? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It depended. I mean, often an engraver who's really the center of a counterfeiting operation would recruit gangs of passers to spend the money for him. If he mm. wanted to get a little bit fancier, he could also recruit regional distributors who would then retail the money to gangs of passers. So the crucial point is that the engraver is always the center of the operation, and he's the one that you want to protect. You know, you don't want to endanger him unnecessarily by having him spend the currency and potentially be arrested. Mm. Hmm. Mm. So let's talk about where you feel the impact is for today. I mean, as we look at, at these folks, where what's the message for today? Well, I think what counterfeiters understood better than anyone is that confidence is what gives money its value. You know, that paper money has value because it has the right marks in the right places. And in a counterfeiting situation, the person presenting it appears trustworthy. So that principle that faith is really the fundamental economic fuel of our country, that's the principle that has powered American prosperity for hundreds of years. And I think we see it today. And it has both a constructive and a destructive aspect. And what's the constructive and what's the destructive? Well, I think that desire to create something for nothing can have tremendous creative potential. I mean, that it's, it's difficult to imagine now just how few resources this country had at the very beginning, particularly in the 13 colonies. You know, we had no gold and silver. We didn't have a resource-rich country, really. What we had was the entrepreneurial spirit of its inhabitants. And they created this economy basically on faith, you know, on the basis of this infusion of paper promises that really couldn't provide what it promised. So they kind of had to fake it before they made it. And that's what really created, created America. On the other hand, you have the kind of dark side of it, which we saw in Wall Street in the past few years, of people creating complex derivatives to try to create value where there was none. And when that house of cards falls, obviously the impact is very destructive. So I think it has both a good and a bad aspect. Hmm. And 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 I think I asked you this: it, it's where's the relevance of this today, in today's world, in terms of wealth, achieving wealth, spending wealth. Well, I think that there are a few messages. I mean, I think there's the broader economic message 
which is that confidence is really at the root of the, the American economy. I think there are, there are personal um, messages that you could draw. I mean, in terms of the, the charisma and, and the personal uh, re- resourcefulness of many of these people. I mean, I think counterfeiters were obviously criminals, but they were brilliant entrepreneurs. And I think anyone who wanted to be successful in business, both then and now, has quite a lot to learn from them. I mean, they, they managed to ingratiate themselves in these local communities and really make themselves folk heroes because they provided a service that was much in demand. They, they satisfied a currency shortage in many of these rural communities. So in a sense, mm. they really were businessmen. Interesting. Hmm. You know, you know, America may look a lot different now than it did in 1690, which is, you know, in, in that period you covered like the 1700s. But there have to be certain resonances. What are they? Well, I think there are a few resonances. I think some of the debates that we have today, the political debates concerning the role of government in crises and the value of money, you know, whether we should go back to the gold standard, all of the things you read about in the newspapers, these are the conversations that we've actually been having as a country for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been having them in the 1700s. The founding fathers debated them on the floor of the Constitutional Convention. Generations of American political leaders have discussed them. So I think it's, I think there's a certain amount of comfort to be drawn by the fact that this is some amount of continuity with the past, that we can consult our predecessors on how they dealt with these same problems. Mm. You know, as you look at what happened then and you look at what's happening now, do you see, what do you see for the future? What's your guess about where we're going? Well, I think the one thing that may be too obvious to mention is that the, the financial market and the world in general has become so complex that it's so much harder now to give specific prescriptions about um, what should happen and what's going to happen in the future. Um, so it's, it, it's hard to know. I think one constant which emerged from my research is that the moments in American history when the government neglected to ensure economic stability, to play some type of role in setting the rules for these markets, those have been the moments when the boom and bust cycle has inflicted a particularly harsh toll. And I think going forward, we, we really need to keep that in mind, you know, that, that we need a government role uh, in our economy to ensure stability. Mm-hmm. So in, in doing so, you know, in any suggestions? Do you have any thoughts? about going with things that you you would think we might want to do to move towards stability? Well, I think the government, in my opinion, should take a much more active role in terms of infrastructure investment, in terms of direct funding of research, direct employment programs. I mean, I think we need to be much more aggressive in tackling this crisis because this isn't just uh, an ordinary financial bust. I mean, this is a crisis that I think strikes at the root of the American economy. I mean, where is the center of the American economy in a country that has rapidly deindustrialized, that has outsourced many of its major industries, um, that has these very lucrative, successful tech companies? But I think it remains to be seen what industry is going to be able to sustain the American middle class um, the way that manufacturing did for so many decades. And I think we need to have a 
a more honest conversation in this country about what are the consequences of certain types of growth. Uh, I think, you know, one thing we saw in the 90s was this, this kind of fake conversation about, you know, you can have free trade, you can have greater wealth, you can, I mean, that there was a sense that everyone could, everyone's boat could be lifted together. And I think the financial crisis really brought some of the stark oppositions of the global economy into focus. Um, so I would hope for the future that we could have a more honest conversation about what we need to do as a country to ensure the middle class continues to be what it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. We have some time, so let's talk about some of these characters that you wrote about, Ben. Um, pick, you know, let's go into each one and uh, share a little piece of them and what you think is very notable. Maybe, maybe negative, but definitely positive. Sure. Well, Owen Sullivan, who's the first character profiled in my book, is an Irish immigrant who comes to this country actually as an indentured servant. And he learned silversmithing. He becomes a silversmith in Boston in 1749. And actually, the scene that opens my book uh, is the summer of 1749. Owen Sullivan and his wife are both alcoholics, so they're drinking pretty heavily. It's a very hot summer in Boston, and they get into a drunken argument. And at one point, Owen Sullivan's wife, at the top of her lungs, screams, you 40,000-pound moneymaker. And moneymaker is a colonial word for counterfeiter, and the neighbors overhear this, they call the police, the police come over, and this is Owen Sullivan's first arrest. So it gives mm. you kind of some insight into his character, where on the, on the one hand, he's a brilliant counterfeiter, he continues forging currency for six years, makes a lot of money. But most of these criminal masterminds have this kind of fatal flaw. And in Owen Sullivan's case, it was really alcohol and a certain kind of blustering, kind of overconfidence that got him into a lot of trouble. And that would lead to his downfall, you know, six years later when he's finally caught by a posse of vigilantes and brought back to New York City and executed. Oh. Mm-hmm. All right, the next one. The next guy is named David Lewis, and he is a very charismatic figure. He's active in the backcountry of Pennsylvania uh, in the first couple of decades of the 19th century. And he is known as the Robin Hood of Pennsylvania. He's actually becomes somewhat of a folk hero because all these stories circulate about how he's helping widows, he's punishing debt collectors. He's kind of the hero of the poor, um, of the people who that financial boom and bust cycle have inflicted a particularly harsh toll on. He's their champion. And the fascinating thing, as we've said before, is that counterfeiters really were the folk heroes. You know, they were coming into these communities and providing currency where none existed. So he has a a long and storied career, and then, unfortunately, he also meets a violent end, (laughs) like many of these people did, where he is shot by uh, by a vigilante and and dies, actually, of gangrene before they can bring him back to jail. Mm. And the last one. The last one, I think, is the most interesting, and his name is Samuel Curtis Upham. And what distinguishes him is that he's not a criminal. He's a shopkeeper in downtown Philadelphia. He runs a stationery store uh, when the Civil War breaks out. And in February 1862, he takes a look at that day's edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he notices that there is a $5 Confederate note reproduced on the cover of the newspaper. 
So he gets a great business idea. He runs down to the inquirer's offices, buys a plate, brings it back to his shop, and starts printing what he calls facsimiles of Confederate mm-hmm. currency. So he mm-hmm. sells these as souvenirs in the theory that since most people didn't think at that point that the Civil War would last very long, they wanted a memento of the Southern Confederacy before it was crushed. But as the mm-hmm. months go on, he diversifies his catalog of Southern money and builds what is really a massive counterfeiting enterprise, which also happens to be perfectly legal, because he's forging the currency of a government that is emphatically not recognized by the Union, so he can continue to do it with impunity for almost a year. Hmm. Wow. Well, so, he, so how does he finally, how does that end? How does he get caught? Well, the funny thing with, with, uh, sorry, with Samuel Upham is that he's actually not caught. You know, that the Southerners, as you can imagine, are enraged by what he's doing. He's denounced by name on the floor of the Confederate Congress. Uh, the Confederacy's president, Jefferson Davis, singles him out. And the South, in particular, is absolutely convinced that Upham is being supported by Lincoln's government, that somehow the North is financing this operation as a kind of economic warfare to destroy the value of the Confederate dollar. Mm. There's no evidence that that really was happening, but obviously the Union just let it happen because I'm sure they knew what its consequences were. So Upham himself, you know, he retires from the business after about a year of doing it, having made a significant amount of money, but he never is caught or punished because what he understands quite brilliantly as an entrepreneur is that the Civil War created a unique opportunity for counterfeiters, that for the first time in history, and perhaps the last in American history, you could be a legal counterfeiter. So you could sell counterfeits from your storefront, you could advertise them in in the newspaper, and I think that speaks to your broader point about what can we learn from these counterfeiters. I think they recognized an opportunity when they saw one and they were willing to act when nobody else would. And I think that's really what distinguishes them as entrepreneurs. Do you think uh, those opportunities, not that I'm condoning this, but do you think it's possible again to do counterfeiting or do you think then with our highly technical system and our very intricate technology, um, could we do it? Well, you know, I, in connection with this book, I went to D.C. and spoke to members of the Secret Service, and they've really done a very, very good job in terms of almost entirely eliminating counterfeit currency from circulation. I think mm. partly it, it has to do with the high-tech nature of today's banknotes. You know, as you mentioned, you have a lot of pretty intense anti-counterfeiting features on today's notes, which are hard to reproduce. I think it's become prohibitively expensive to produce a really good fake these days. Obviously, you could use a photocopier or a PC computer to produce an okay fake, but increasingly, that's just not enough, you know, because you can hold it up and see the watermark. Uh, and in future generations of banknotes that they're planning on introducing, it's going to be even easier for ordinary people without any special training or devices to detect a counterfeit. So I, I think to answer your question, Counterfeiting has declined significantly. I mean, it's estimated that about one per 10,000 notes, both at home and abroad, are counterfeit, uh, which is a major decline from its height in the 19th century. Hmm. So that's really a positive thing. I think it is. It, It certainly is. I mean, I think the Secret Service 
is very aggressive. You know, they have headquarters all over the world. They take their job very seriously. Mm-hmm. I think inevitably, though, as our, as our economy is less about paper, it's less about real things and more about virtual things, I think yeah. that type of fraud migrates to other spheres. You know, that so yeah. much of our currency today exists as bits in fiber optic cables. I mean, but that's really how money is transferred. we're seeing that, though. We're seeing people steal our identities. I mean, we're seeing that, too. In Definitely. terms of credit card numbers online and passwords, and we're seeing that. So, as you, what you're saying is it's escalating, escalating to another level. Exactly, it's become more immaterial. You know, paper was more abstract than gold, and now we have this new level of abstraction, which is really computers and data. And there are new opportunities for fraud. I think every every new version of money produces a new field of. of both constructive and destructive possibilities. Mm-hmm. So what's the message of your book? What would you like readers to take away? Well, I think, there's, I think there are a few lessons. I mean, I think the, the biggest lesson um, is really this sense of continuity with history, you know, that I think many people have this idea that the things that we're experiencing as a country collectively, are things we've never experienced before. You know, I think there's a certain infatuation with novelty, um, with the idea that we're the only generation to have ever dealt with certain challenges. And I think one of the greatest lessons of history is that that's not true, that obviously we have new types of technology and that no specific era is identical to another, but that we've experienced a lot of the same problems before. We've certainly had very similar debates in this country before, and that if we want to get a greater sense of depth about how to move forward, I think the best thing that we can do is consult the past, you know, because we've had a lot of very smart people dealing with the same issues, and we can consult them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the good news is uh, this medium probably won't exist anymore in its form but it certainly can happen. People can steal, in a sense, which is what counterfeiting is, but they can steal identities because uh, everything's online. I mean, it, 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 that's a, a greater possibility now. Definitely. Yeah, I think, I think it creates new vulnerabilities. But, you know, I, it's always about convenience. You know, I think it's obviously more convenient now to, for us to have certain things online. I mean, that... that the kind of online commerce world that we all live in now wouldn't have emerged if it wasn't tremendously convenient for most customers. I think the same thing with the evolution of paper money. Paper money is simply more convenient than carrying gold and silver coins. It's certainly more convenient to produce than gold and silver coins. So I think each new level of convenience produces certain vulnerabilities, you know, because it becomes a little bit more immaterial. But I I would say a positive thing to draw from it is just as we've done in the past, we can overcome those vulnerabilities. You know, there will be new safeguards. You see it online with encryption. You know, there's very, very strong encryption used to protect e-commerce transactions, just as now there's very strong anti-counterfeiting features to protect paper money. So the lesson is that we will catch up to stop that type of of, uh, criminal activity. What, What do you see in your future in terms of this book you've just written? What's next for you? You're going to continue on the same notes or same vein. Well, I'd, I'd love to continue writing, but the, my new project, which I'm working on now, is actually 
it's a different topic. It's about Mark Twain and the American West and his travels there and and the Civil War and kind of the evolution of the country. So it's it's a bit of a different tack, but there it does have some similarities to this book. Yeah, in that you're looking at history for some answers for the future. Exactly. And just interfacing with these wonderful personalities. I mean, Mark Twain is obviously a very beloved character, but they, they speak to us now. I think they have a lot of lessons for what we're experiencing today. How can people find your book, then? You can find it at local bookstores, um, online on Amazon, and also on my website at bentarnoff.com. Do you uh, teach any workshops or classes? I don't, no. These days I'm, I'm doing the writing full-time. Which is really, really great. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Any final thoughts or final message you'd like to give to our listeners today? Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, I think the final thought which emerged from my book is that finance is this kind of complex creature, and like anything complex, it has both a good and a bad side. And I think the challenge for the future is how to minimize the bad finance and maximize the good finance. Mm, very good. Do you, do you feel that writing this book and doing this research um, gave you some powerful lessons for your own financial future? That's a good question. I think, you know, I think it did, actually. I think what it gave me was an appreciation of how precarious the system we live in is. I think anyone who experienced the financial crisis feels that intuitively. But I think when you look at America's financial history, you really understand that we live in a very precarious, very fragile system and I think that can be discouraging, but I think it's also, um, it, it's, there's something kind of exciting about knowing that because it means that the opportunities are constantly shifting, that you can't go on autopilot. You have to continue to look for new opportunities just like these mm-hmm. counterfeiters and, and, and adapt as quickly as possible. Yeah. All right. So, again, the, with the, my guest has been Ben Tarnoff, and the book is A Counterfeiter's Paradise. The Wicked Lives and Surprising Adventures of Three Early American Moneymakers. And uh, it's, it's a great book. And you can log on to, did you say bentarnoff.com? Yes, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Hold on for a minute, please. All right, folks, remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need and know that you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, right here on Voice America, I'm Patricia Raskin for Patricia Raskin Positive Living. Write to me at Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com and sign up for my newsletter. Okay, folks, bye for now. Thank you. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio.